we have a great group of 12th graders at our church, and it's a group that I feel particularly close to for a couple of reasons. My daughter is a junior, so I know some of them personally. And also, I got to be their youth pastor four years ago when we were in between youth pastors for a few months. You got to play youth pastor, and I had fun with that. So we have a, a really great group of high school seniors. That's my disclaimer, because I want to pick on high school seniors a little bit now. We, most everyone in here has been a 12th grader at one time. And you go into 12th grade, and all of a sudden, things feel a little bit different. Because at the high schools we attend, typically, um, we're given new privileges. And even maybe a new sense of authority. We're actually able to make certain choices. And there's some perks to, to being a 12th grader. You get to register in line first. You get to carry on traditions. You get, sometimes, usually a special parking pass. I mean, after all, you've driven a whole 18 months now, right? And so you ought to have special privileges. A lot of times on sports teams or in, in choirs or bands, the leader will say, well, what do the seniors want to do? What do you think, seniors? And so this kind of pseudo-authority is given. And all that, I, get, I suppose, you know, our, our 12th graders earn that, and, and they enjoy that, and that's part of the maturation process. But there's only one problem with it, is they actually begin to believe that they are mature. That is the problem. And 12th graders tend to in one year become expert. They can never interact with underclassmen, by the way. That would say that's too much. But then you can bring up any subject, whether it's a complicated social issue, whether it's um, something on theology, whether it's even um, something mechanical. And 12th graders become experts. They know everything. And they are much, much smarter than their parents, right? Do you guys, do you guys remember this? I can tell you are by your reaction. So that happened to all of us. Then college happens, and after a few months of college, or maybe a few weeks, all of a sudden, those high school seniors are freshmen. They're at the bottom of the ranking now, and they start realizing that you know, home wasn't that bad after all. There was something called groceries that magically appeared in the pantry and in the refrigerator that are no longer there. And, and parents, they're actually pretty smart. And parents are actually um, not too bad to hang out with. And there is kind of a reality check. Well, today we're going to have a spiritual maturity check. Because kind of like the experience of many high school seniors, I think a lot of us believe we're more spiritually mature than what we really are. And the scripture that we're going to look at today and the Bible is going to speak to us, and it's going to give us a way to check our spiritual maturity. When I was in my early 30s, I thought I was in relatively good, good shape, and I used to run a lot. I'd go to Moss Wright Park, and I'd do the two full laps around there. Poor Beth was home with the toddlers another hour, but, you know, I, I was, I apologize to you now publicly for that, taking care of kids, but I was running and doing those type of things, and and I went and got a checkup, and they took my blood, and the doctor came back and said, Aaron, your triglycerides are way too high. You're way too high, especially for your age. So since that time, I've uh, been getting my blood tested on a regular basis and checking those numbers and doing things, and I try to eat better. Probably three out of five meals, I eat pretty good. 
Still working on those two out of five that aren't so good. And I still exercise. I go to Planet Fitness. For those of you who go there, I know we see each other and pretend we don't see each other and don't make eye contact and go on to the machines. But hey, at least we're doing it, right? At least we're doing it. So, so I know I'm not the picture of health, uh, but uh, last month I, I went and had my blood work and um, everything's good right now. I'm not any medication. I thank God for that. The first service started clapping when I said that. So they love me more than you guys. But actually, no, don't, don't clap, don't clap, don't clap. Actually, because I stopped them and, and it made me laugh. They started clapping at me and I started laughing at them. Like, don't, don't, come on. There's a, there a lot of mother figures there laughing. My, mo, my own mom's here and she's not clapping. She's sleeping back there. But um, these other mother figures, they, 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 they clap for me. So. so here's the point. The point is, is that our blood is drawn and, and a sample is given because that sample gives indication of what's happening in the entire body. When it comes to sampling, too, uh, we know this from statistics or, or from any type of poll that a smaller sample of the population gives indication of what the whole population thinks about an issue. The scripture we're going to look at today is a sample for us from scripture and it's not the only test of spiritual maturity, but I'm going to tell you this. It's a test we usually don't judge ourselves by. We usually don't judge ourselves by what the Scripture tells us what spiritual maturity is. So let's jump into the Scripture. The Scripture today is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to people like us, to people who are believers, to people who are in the church. And this is what he wrote. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still fleshly. For since there is, here's the test now, Envy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not unspiritual men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. and Each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered. I love this line but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We're going to see out of the scripture tests of maturity. A lot of times our test of maturity um, becomes our spiritual disciplines. And we... we we begin to judge ourselves uh, by standards that are not necessarily even in the Bible. One of the things I believe that my ministry has been called to do is to get people to read the Bible. I'm a big believer in reading the Bible. And we have out in the communication center, uh, we have Bible reading plans for you to take home today. I, I think it'd be great if everyone in our church tried to read the New Testament. Reading the entire Bible in the year is really tough, but I know some of you are good at that, but for the rest of us, Let's read that, try to read that New Testament. That's good. That's good to have a plan, a plan to follow. But while we're trying to be spiritually mature, while we're trying to create a devotional life, if we overlook issues such as envy and strife, fruits of the Spirit, 
we've forgotten the purpose of why we're reading the Bible in the first place. For example, if you've sat down in your living room, you've got the Bible, you've got a journal, you've got a coffee, you've got the peace of God in your house, you even have a clean room to sit in, and all of a sudden, one of those little hellions runs through the living room, spills their drink, chasing a brother or sister, and here you are with your devotion to God. And so with Bible in hand, you say, you stupid little brats, would you shut up? I'm trying to read God's word and mature. This is a hypothetical situation. <laughs> but it is true that sometimes we, we see things like our Bible reading plan, our church participation, even our position on some of the moral issues of the day, or even our application of those positions. We see those big kind of black and white issues as what makes us spiritually mature. But the Bible wants to dig deeper into our hearts of who we are. See, I know that if I preach really hard right now against America and preached about the, the, the demise of America and the demise of culture, that, that would be a popular sermon to give. And sometimes stuff like that needs to be given. But a lot of times when we're speaking so much about culture that we overlook the depravity in our own hearts. We, we overlook some of the issues in our own hearts. So this is what the Lord's saying. Here's a sample of your spiritual maturity. Here's the first thing. Write it down. You probably already figured it out. Envy. Envy is a test of how spiritual you are. What you do with envy. What is envy? I wrote down this definition for you. It's in your notes. Envy is resentment against another's success. Jealousy. Resentment against another's success. I'm going to tell you this. Every single person in this room, me first, we struggle with envy. Yeah, there's something, you know, we don't, we don't hear a lot about in God's house because we want to hear about big macro issues. We want to hear, but what about the envy in our hearts? What about the envy in our hearts when someone else is successful? How do we respond? A lot of time in our quest to be good Christian boys and girls, we try to overcompensate for the envy within us. And so we become maybe inauthentic by trying to act like we're not envious when we really are. I want to read scripture to you and then we'll talk about that some more. Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 24, says it this way. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want to just say something about this. Is that because of our understanding of personalities, because of our understanding of inherited traits, we've often now excuse our behavior instead of letting the Holy Spirit transform our behavior. So we say, well, I'm just a redhead, so because of that, watch out, I could lose my temper anytime. Or I'm part of this ethnic group, and this is the characteristic of us. Or my grandpa and my dad was this way, so I'm this way too. And that's not crucifying the flesh. But Jesus can help us transform those things if we allow him. 
if we allow, if we give space for his presence in our life, if we give space for his work in our life, he's constantly, guys, he's working on me. He's, he's constantly correcting me, and it's an act of love. I receive love from the Father because the Father keeps correcting me and, and, and you know, helping me with my language, helping me with my attitude, helping me with um, my unloving posture in many times. He, he's working on us, guys. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, you have to crucify the flesh with its passions. You have to say, yeah, this may be the way I naturally react, but through Jesus and his help and because of what he did for me on the cross, I'm not going to be that way anymore. He's going to help me. So verse 25 of Galatians 5 says, since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Bible says, don't be conceited, don't provoke each other, but for the point of this sermon, don't envy one another. Don't do something about the envy. So I wrote this sermon probably nine days ago. I wrote the outline and so forth. And then I've been thinking about it all week. And I've been thinking, I'm going to tell these people, don't envy. Don't envy. But you already knew that, didn't you? You already knew not to envy. This is just like a reminder. So like, Lord, what are we, Lord, what are we going to do about our envy? And I said, Lord, what, what am I going to do about my envy? What am I doing? And I said, so I'm sorry, I really thought about this, took it to the Lord. And here's what we wrongly do, and I've already referred to this, but we, we wrongly overcompensate for it. We, we sometimes become inauthentic because we're like actors and actresses trying to act like we're not envious. I'm coaching 8th and ninth grade basketball right now. Guys, it's not going good at all. <laughs> I mean, our team is 1 and 9. That's one win to nine losses. And it's a great group of kids. I mean, I really like these kids. My son's having a good season himself. I like these kids. They have good attitudes. They play hard. I enjoy coaching them. They just have one problem. They can't put the ball inside the rim. That's a problem with basketball. They also have trouble catching the ball. They have trouble passing without traveling. We've had, it's not going good. It's not the coaching, okay? It's not the coaching. I just want to let you know that. So here in a little bit, at 1 o'clock today, I'm going down to City Hall to the Parks and Recreation Department to find out who we're going to play in the playoffs. I know who we're going to play because we're in last place. We're going to play the first place team. That's the gold team. The gold team is 10 and 0. We played them pretty good, but they beat us and they beat everyone else. That's who I'll find out I'm going to play. And hypothetically, again, I could be envious of the gold team's coach, couldn't I? Could be envious that he has players who know how to dribble, players who can pass, players who can catch, players who can put, who can make a layup. So, if I'm envious, and this is what happens, all right? I got a point, I'm going here. I'm envious of the gold team's coach, hypothetically. And I'm feeling that envy in me. So all of a sudden, I'll, I could do this, and this would be a wrong reaction. Hey, bro! That's always bad. If you use the word bro, that's, that's, you're already on the wrong track right now. Hey, bro, dude, you're 10 and 0. I'm so happy for you, man. That's awesome. You deserve it, man. I'm so glad that you're 10 and 0. The love of Jesus is just causing me to tell you that your 10 victories is so much better than my nine losses. I humbly honor you, sir. 
Because I'm not jealous at all. I'm not envious. I'm spiritually mature. I honor you, gold team coach. Now you're laughing because it doesn't feel authentic, does it? It doesn't at all. So, so Lord, what, what do we do about this envy? And I think, the, I think taking it to prayer is what we need to do. And I think that actually admitting to the Lord, confessing that you're envious of someone or some entity is good. And if you're in an environment where you can say it out loud, it's actually good for your brain to hear your mouth say, God, help me because I'm envious of this person. God, I'm, help me because I'm envious of this entity or this opportunity. God, help me. And the, the very act of confessing that and actually hearing you say that to the Lord is, is something that will be beneficial to you. And if you, you have someone to confess to, sometimes that's helpful too. Um, we don't have to go through a priest. The Bible says we're a priest straight to the Lord. But the, James chapter 5 talks about confessing weaknesses to each other, confessing sins. So sometimes, not all the time, it may be good to just tell a trusted friend, hey, listen, I'm, I'm struggling with envy. Would you pray with me? And I just think that, that, that helps us there. And then this is what happens. There's transformational power that begins to happen. Instead of trying to live this kind of inauthentic, overcompensating fakeness, maybe God could take that envy we have and turn it to respect. We could respect, you know, and not to overplay my, my, my little story here, I can respect the gold team and, you know, re respect them. I still want to beat them. In fact, we need prayer for that if we play them. Can the intercessory prayer team? We need a miracle, guys. But I have dreams I, remember, I saw the movie Hoosiers. I have dreams. I want to be the Gene Hackman of Hendersonville Park and Recreation's basketball and win that tournament next weekend. But I can turn that envy into respect and respect them. You can turn that envy into empathy. And let's say it's someone in your organization who has more responsibility than you. Instead of just having envy, turn the envy to, Lord, I don't know what it's like to be in charge of this group. I don't know what it's like to have those pressures. I don't know what it's like to be 25 and to be over 56-year-olds. Lord, give me, help me to pray for that person. How God can take that envy and he can turn it into empathy. God can take the envy and sometimes he may turn it into partnership. Say, I can help that person, they can help me. We, we can collaborate. We, we can, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit can do that. But I think it starts with prayer. So it starts with prayer. So whoever or whatever you're envious of today, take it to the Lord. Confess that weakness. It's a natural weakness that we all inherit because of our sinful nature. Confess it to the Lord and let's just see what God can do. Let's see what God, how God can turn that envy into something productive, something good. So the next thing the scripture told us, and you can write this down if you haven't figured it out yet, strife, strife. Strife is a powerful word to even say out loud. What is strife? I wrote this definition down. It's simply conflicts between people. And I want you to know this is a sign of spiritual maturity. The less strife we have in our life, it's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's amazing to me is that 
the church of Jesus, the church. We, we definitely judge the fruit of spiritual leadership incorrectly by magnetism and by personality charisma. And there's a lot of men and women who are highly esteemed in the Christian church who are highly spiritually mature because they're full of envy and strife. And as I say that, the Holy Spirit warns me that that's for me more than anybody. You understand? So, so if, if my ministry grows, like we grow as a church and I speak more places and I start speaking on TV, that won't happen. Someone asked me the other day, have you ever preached on TV? I'm like, no, I've got to, I've got to lose 50 pounds before I go on TV. There's no threat of that. That whole three out of five mills thing or two out of five, right? So, so there, there can be a, a, a success without the spiritual maturity. So I say this, for, I'm, I'm speaking to me right now, but you can speak it to your heart. So let's try not to think about other people in our life. Let's try to think about us right now. This is what the scripture says. Do you understand that? I'm not pulling this out of the hat right now. I didn't just write on a napkin, uh, what are some signs of spiritual maturity? I think this, I think that. This is what the scripture says, does it not? It says that you're you're still a baby, you're still on milk because there's envy and strife. And in your home, in your home, listen, the culture of your home is more important. It's more important than anything else in your home. And God wants you to have a culture of peace in your home. Some of you who are homemakers, you, you frankly need to be more concerned about the culture of your home than the decoration of your home. It's more important that you create a loving atmosphere than you create this amazing meal that you can post pictures of on Pinterest. Do people actually do that? I've heard, I've heard. This, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this is, those things are an art and they're unto the Lord and I'm not suggesting they're bad. I'm suggesting prioritization here. That God wants, God wants us to, to not live in envy, not live in strife, but to, to live in peace. And that's what, if we have a 242 group ever, I don't know of one right now, so I'm not being passive aggressive here, but if we ever had a 242 group that's just full of strife, just full of strife. People can't get along and it's just destructive. It's better to shut that down and to not let that group exist and to let a group with strife continue. That's why really for churches, you know, churches, unfortunately, are so full of strife. When there's a culture of strife that develops, that's not put in check, that, that church specialists, whoever these vague people are, uh, people who research this say now it is better to actually close down a church and reopen six months later than it is to let these diseased, strife-filled churches exist that actually repel people from the gospel. That's the issue. Do you understand that instinctively non-Christians realize Christians were supposed to be filled with love? We're supposed to be filled with peace. We're not supposed to envy one another. We're supposed to uh, celebrate together. So when non-Christians come to churches that are diseased with strife and envy, what ends up happening is we repel more people instead of attracting more people. That's why this is a big issue. 
this is a big issue. This is a big issue. In fact, God wants us to check our hearts today. Check where we're at. Because strife and envy destroys Proverbs chapter 17. Now, the Proverbs are kind of organized on one saying at a time. So, so they're, they're standalone sayings. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1. This particular wise saying says this. Better a dry crust with peace than a, than a house full of feasting with strife. It's better for you to have a dry piece of toast and everyone get along than to have steak and lobster and everyone be in strife. That's what it's saying right there. We focus on the wrong things, don't we? We focus on the wrong things. Verse 19 of chapter chapter 17 revisits this subject and it says this, one who loves to offend loves strife. You know that if you love to offend people, it actually, um, it actually will bring you temporary popularity. If you love just like to offend, it, it causes people to laugh. And it causes you to seem powerful in that social dynamic. But at the end, you'll end up not having friends. If you love the one who loves to offend, loves strife. If, if you're addicted to conflict and you just look for it and you look for conflict and you love conflict, um, that's not the characteristics of Jesus in your life. Now, by nature of what God's called me to do, I deal with conflict on almost a weekly basis. I, I, I know I can say a monthly basis. So I'll say three times a month, all right? <laughs> three times a month, at least, I deal with a major conflict. And part of leadership is asserting myself. Part of leadership is solving the problems. But I don't like that part of what I do. I just do it because to bring peace to the body. What I like is I like getting along with people. I like experiencing God's peace. I like experiencing God's presence. I like, I like the love and characteristics of the Holy Spirit. So if we love conflict and love strife, that gives us something to work on, doesn't it? It gives us something to work on. Have you ever met somebody? I know you have. Maybe you've been this person. Maybe I've been this person. And you get to know them, and they're like, this job, that, that, that organization, that job, boy, they have problems, and then that church has problems, and that school my kid has problems, and that ex-spouse has problems, and that neighborhood community, you know, the homeowners association has problems, and then my kid's tutor has problems. All of a sudden, you start saying, here, here, here. Is there a common denominator here? Right? Hey, I have my list of, of bad experiences too. I'm not saying that we, we just love everything that happens in life, but I'm saying that if, if you're never happy anywhere, if you're never happy anywhere, the problem may not be with them. All right? Maybe you just... Some people are just drawn towards conflict. Got to have it. Got to have it. Got to have strife. Have to be there. Have to go to those places. Hey, Jesus people, that's not us. And if it is us, let's allow God to change us, right? All right? This is what this is about. I'm not trying to chase people off saying you don't belong. I'm saying this is stuff God's dealing with me, and I pass it on to you, and let's grow together. How does that sound? 
Don't you, aren't you glad we have a God who loves us so much that he corrects us sometimes and he, he brings us truth? How many know the word of God isn't just something to boost our self-esteem? The word of God is something to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the word of God's for. Here's the last thing I want to mention that's a sign, a sample of spiritual maturity here. And that, that's this, unhealthy sectarianism. We are people who are tribal people. How many know the church in the Lake? We're a tribe of our own. We, you guys choose to go here. No one makes you come here. You come here, so we're a group. The 1045 service, we're kind of a tribe too. We're different than the 9 a.m. service. And then we actually create cliques here. We have these cliques called 242 groups. And we have these cliques called men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. And the 6th and 7th graders, their little group, their little clique that... We kick them out of here after worship. We're like, out of here, guys. I'm tired. I got tired of seeing them sleep. So I said, go have your own class, all right? <laughs> My own son, he's in seventh grade. He's back there. Valve <laughs> open, drool coming down. So we created a class. It's grown. It's grown. It's gone good. So we create these cliques. And here's the thing. A clique is not bad. Actually, a clique helps create community and actually helps grow things. It grows the kingdom of God. But what is wrong is exclusive cliques, prideful cliques. It's that sectarian thought where we think we are the best and no one else is significant. No, we, we are it. Our group is it. Our group is the way to go. We, we, no one else is as good as us. I understand we have preferences, but when we have that sectarian mindset that we say that, this, this is, we're the best and everybody else, they just don't quite measure up to us. I hope they're as good as us someday. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. It is. Look at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 3 again. For whatever, whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, who was actually writing these words, and another, I'm with Apollos, who was a very gifted verbal communicator, evidently, Paul was a really good writer, but we think not so much a good speaker. And this Apollos guy, he was a great speaker. When you say, hey, I'm a Paul guy, or I'm an Apollos guy, are you not unspiritual men? We do it all the time, don't we? We get enamored with Christian personalities. We get enamored with churches. We get enamored with denominations. And the scripture says this, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? And let, let me just extend this question to contextualize with us. What is the church at Indian Lake? What is Aaron and Beth Allison? What is the Southern Baptist Convention? What is the General Council of the Assemblies of God? What, what, what is, na name it, this is what it is. They are servants through whom you believe. That's it. They're servants from whom you believe. And each has the role the Lord has given. I want to comment on that for a second. Recently, I was having a conversation about a church. I don't really know this church that well, but I heard about something they did to evangelize. I thought it was silly. I wouldn't go to a church like that. We're not going to do that here. But guess what? A lot of people liked it. And a lot of people went. 
And guess what? God's using that church to save people. Doesn't mean I have to go. It doesn't mean I have to do it. Right? It just means that that's God's using different ones of his servants. Let me see verse 5 again to reemphasize what I'm saying for that. They are servants through whom they believe. And look at that line. And each has the role the Lord has given. The Lord has given his body a different role to reach different people, to emphasize even different theological perspectives, to do different things within the body of Christ, contextualize to neighborhoods, to cities, to places. So now going on to verse 7, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So let's kind of throw down some of those labels, huh? All right. Let, let's, not, let's not get enamored with Bible teachers, enamored with churches, enamored with movements. How about this? Why don't we get enamored with Jesus Christ? How's that sound? Jesus hadn't let me down once. I've had a lot of different things associated with religion let me down. Jesus hasn't let me down. People have messed me up. God hasn't messed me up. All right. So a sign of a mature believer saying, we're looking at the envy in our life. We're praying. We're giving it to the Lord. We're looking about strife, and we're, 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 we're actually creating uh, habits in our life to avoid strife. Instead of even subconsciously going to places where they are strife, we're actually looking to be peacemakers. That's what God said. Peacemakers are called the Son of God. Whatever organization you're a part of, whatever group you're a part of, you're bringing the peace of the Lord there. I'm going to invite our ushers to begin to position themselves to distribute communion. And here today, we're going to pass the communion out to everyone. And everyone here is welcome to take communion. If you don't want to take communion today, feel free to let it pass. Sometimes Christians, for good reasons, don't want to take communion on a particular Sunday. That's certainly the case. If you're not a Christian, if you're not right with God, I'm going to give you a chance to join me in prayer in a few minutes. And if you want to take communion today, I want you to take communion, but I want you to do it after you've made things right with God. Like me, I'm going to repent of my sin this morning. I'm going to turn my heart back to the Lord. I'm going to ask the Lord to help me um, to become less envious and the Lord to help me become one who avoids strife and who avoids, avoids unhealthy sectarianism. But I'm going to tell you this, even if I get all that, if, if I was like the best, the best at not being jealous or envious, and I was maybe the best there's ever been, at bringing peace to situation. And, and I was really, really good at just loving every group of people and not getting all tribal in my mind in a negative way. Um, my righteousness still wouldn't be good enough. So we, we, don't, we don't become qualified for heaven by becoming less jealous or less envious. It, it doesn't work because the scripture says that our righteousness, even when we're at our best, and compared to God's holiness, it's filthy rags. So um, when we take communion this morning, when we take communion this morning, it's going to remind us that it's what Jesus did on the cross. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the hope of his return. That's what our salvation. It's not centered on works. It's not even centered on our ability to be more moral. It's totally centered around Jesus. 
the lectionary from which we took 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today, and that's where I started to preach, has other scriptures today. The Old Testament reading is one I want to read to you right now out of Deuteronomy 30. It's so appropriate as we examine our hearts for communion. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 says, See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him. For he is your life, he will prolong your life in the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 and 20. Can we say amen to the word of the Lord? Last week I preached on Psalm 112, and I talked about the benefits of fearing the Lord. Today, the psalm says this, the psalm for this particular Sunday. It's a companion to Psalm 112. Psalm 119 says, How happy are those whose way is blameless, who live according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and to seek him with all their hearts. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's pray together.